I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Good evening, friends. I think you're in for a treat. I have had a wonderful day, mostly today. I did begin it a few days ago, but reading Colin's book all day today, I've been immersed in the life and culture of the book, and it has been thrilling. I really do believe it is a great book. It's at times funny, sad, uplifting, uh, times uh, very challenging, insightful, and political. So it's a wonderful read. And it really, if I can sum it up, it's an exploration of a moment, a personal moment in history for the African and African-Caribbean diaspora. And this is wonderful to see it uh, from the ground up, if you like. Um, I'll declare an interest. I'm unfortunate to have known Colin um, for a long time. We've worked together. Um, if I say worked together, he was my boss. He's denied this. He was my boss man. That's me going very colloquial there. You can hear that. Um, he produced me, um, which it sounds a bit maternal, doesn't it? But um, yes. Uh, it was a vaginal delivery. Yes, that's right. No need to be explicit, Colin, really, please. Um, as you will find out, he did study medicine, so he knows about vaginas. Um, and so, um, yes, he produced me uh, at, uh, at the BBC, BBC World Service, um, which uh, Colin describes in gory detail in the book, which, which we will hear about. And the book is beautifully structured, beautifully structured through the eyes or Colin viewing through the eyes of looking at eight members of his family. And through that kind of keyhole looks outwards at various aspects of the culture and politics of, of this diaspora experience that Colin is, Colin is talking about. So we go through it and then it's preface. There's a preface where he does challenge us right from the start. He describes himself as terrified of people finding out what I really felt. That was a great way to kick off, Colin. I didn't know that about you, that you were yeah, terrified of that. I, I suddenly felt nervous that in some way or another, at some of our encounters, I might have uh, terrified you, but I don't think so. No, I meant I was masking, really, but then I was schooled to mask. Yes, I think that's a, quite a lot of that. The book is about that, isn't it? And also your relatives giving you advice about whether to or not. You're not sure where the enemy is and whether they will manifest themselves differently to the way you imagine them to be. The yes, indeed. So I mean, you could have been the enemy. Yes, of course. And therefore, I want you to hold back, withhold, uh, um, dispense information to you in case you might use it to uh, use bad it ends. to a later yeah, stage. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought we'd kick off with a reading, Colin, tonight, okay. um, with your first uh, keyhole character, who is known in the family as Doc Saunders, uh, but yeah. whether he's a Doc or not, we don't know. So uh, let's hear your first reading, Colin, please, and then we'll sure. chat some more. Thanks, Michael. And by the way, Michael summed it up beautifully. I wish I was recording. In fact, we are recording. I might steal what you've said. <laughs> no. Can I do another cost. of these uh, episodes? 
Okay, so thanks for summing up. The eight uh, true short stories is the way I imagined it. And this is Doc Saunders. And so we begin. All families have a hierarchy. In our family, there were several tiers, but the bottom rung was reserved permanently for my granduncle, Doc Saunders. Relatives were often critical of him. He was said to have told too many lie and was too white-minded in his fawning preference for white people. Most damningly, he'd been assayed for selling, without consulting anyone, Aunt Anita's prize violin that she'd once played at Carnegie Hall, so the story went, and had left in his care before she died. No one had spoken to Doc Saunders in over a decade, but when I was 19 and was offered a place as a medical student at the London Hospital, now the Royal London Hospital, he appeared to be a possible saviour. The school's based in Whitechapel, an area our family knew very little about other than it was a bad square to land on in Monopoly. <laughs> Arriving there in 1981, the Monopoly board didn't seem to be wrong. Whitechapel felt neglected, riddled with clapboard houses whose walls would wobble if you brushed too heavily alongside them. Condemned buildings lined every street, boarded up, disfigured by corrugated barricades and rusting barbed wire. The prospect of living there was not enticing. All the rooms in the student halls of residence had gone, and I hadn't made many friends yet among the privileged bohemians who clubbed together to rent houses in slightly less seedy neighborhoods like Bethnal Green, Michael. Where my mum came from. Ah. After a week of commuting from the capital of Britain, Luton, it was clear I'd have to find somewhere in London. That's when Doc Saunders' name first came up. He was a sweet back, a saga boy, a man who'd, ne who'd made never-ending courtships his life's work. This is what I knew. He was a pioneer, arriving in Britain before World War II, and had thoroughly enjoyed himself before tens of thousands of other West Indians showed up to spoil the party. <laughs> Overnight, he'd gone from being an exotic curiosity to just another irksome darky. But even as the competition mounted, this red, meat-eating, glistening torridor of a man around whom no one in a blouse and skirt was safe had continued to attract a string of women happy to act as warming pans in between the sheets so long as Doc Saunders, whatever games he played, came home to them. I'd never met my granduncle, but as a child I'd imagined the man in a long grey overcoat down to his ankles, a clothes fit for the consumptive gunsling and Doc Holiday in the Westerns. Of all the fellows who came around our house, I reckon Joe Barnes, who was almost found, would know better. So I went looking for Joe. If he wanted the unvarnished truth, Joe was your man. He was known for always greeting the fellows with an insult. Most of the men were ugly jackasses. Or if he was feeling generous, just ugly. Or just jackasses. Joe would breeze into a room, lay eyes on one of the ugly jackasses, and complain loudly, Ross, my day's spoiled already. <laughs> He'd always been the one adult who descended to our level to talk to us kids. Even now, I think of him on one knee. But when I asked Joe what Doc Saunders was really like, he did something I'd never seen before. He paused. I could see his mind racing through various permutations, pulling out drawers of thought before slamming them shut. Why you ask, said Joe finally. I'm supposed to go live with him. Ross, for how long? Not sure, just the cotch till I find somewhere. You don't have no other choice? <laughs> I shook my head. Well, I might say it could be worse, 
but I don't like tell no lie. <laughs> Joe wouldn't be drawn further except to say, ask him what happened to the violin. <laughs> So let's just do a little bit of backstory in case people don't know. So you were brought up in Luton. Um, don't get too Capital excited, Capital of folks. Britain. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Mum and dad working in Vauxhall Motors. Yeah, Vauxhall Motors uh, in a one employment town. So Vauxhall Motors employed 40,000 people uh, in the 70s. The population was 120,000, so almost everybody worked there. Yeah. And you went through uh, a posh schooling because uh, your parents made some sacrifices. Yes, tell some sacrifices. Uh, at this point, Michael, I always tell the audience that uh, my education was funded by marijuana. So, What's marijuana? Marijuana is, is, is that thing you smoke too much of, Michael. I've never touched it. <laughs> never Gan touched you it. might know it was ganja. Right. Uh, so, I was once stopped in the street in Finsbury Park by a guy who said, you want charge? Oh, yeah, and I yeah. said, sorry? <laughs> What's charge? You know what, I've never found You know what it means? Like, I do like now. charging up a battery. Yes, yeah, yeah. I do now. Yeah, yeah. Never anyway, sorry, I yeah, interrupt. Yeah. No. Sorry, carry on. So I'm, I'm 10. Imagine I'm 10. Yes. I'm 10 and I have good brains. And my parents are feeding me all the fish that they can. <laughs> but it's not going to work because I'm destined for the failing state school. It's called Rotherham. It closed down in the 70s. So they were right. And so my mum says to Bad Guy, my father, who has these terrible bags under his eyes, permanent bags under his eyes. Can't imagine. Beautiful look. <laughs> says to Bad Guy, we must uh, scrimp and save and send this boy to a private school so he can get some education. Uh, and at the time, my mother's not working at Vossmutter's then. She does later. But at the time, there's only one wage coming in. And that time, there were five pygmy, five children. And so Bad Guy reckons the only way he can mm, come up with the school fees is to sell this, marijuana. This magical something. Yeah, so I'm his bag man. So we be bag a little sort of beach and powder sachets of marijuana and we drive around Luton dropping it off. And, and you're about 11 at this 10, point. 10, 11, yeah, yeah. Yes. And so that's, uh, that was the kind of the, the, the genesis of why I would one day end up talking to you on this wonderful stage in front of this erudite crowd. Yeah. But for marijuana, with I would a, not be here. With a posher voice than me. <laughs> yes. This is a Luton voice. What are you talking about? Yeah, <laughs> yeah so I, I got to the school. It was very, I was very lucky to go to the school because it was run by American monks. It was in St Albans, which is kind of a leafy suburb. Suburban commuter town. And it was run by the Brothers of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And uh, I was Should I cross with you when you do that? I don't know. My one goes spectacles, testicles, wallet and watch. It's slightly different. Yeah. North, south, east and west, I yeah. think it's what we, we do. Uh, but uh, I was very fortunate because they're Americans. And this is in the... Uh, when I went to the school, it was, in my, it was in the early 70s. And there was still this kind of backwash of the civil rights movement. And so they actually felt bad about what had been done in their name to, towards black people in America. So they treated me, and my brother also went to the school, very, very kindly. And after a while, newsflash, Michael, marijuana selling doesn't pay after a while because you're, you're going to get caught. So after a while, that guy, um, he got caught, and the, the police came, raided the house, dug up the garden, rifled through the house. Miraculously, he never went to jail, he got a big fine. Um, but soon after then, my mother's so ashamed about all of that business, she couldn't turn a blind eye to it, in all honesty. Uh, because he was doing good. It was getting me to be able to sit with you 40 years later. Yes. Uh, she showed him the door. And so I remained at the school, but the money had run out. And whenever the bursar would send a note back to Mrs. Grant, Ethelyn, my mum, more or less saying, um, you're late with the fees again, 
my mother would write back immediately and she'd say to the bursar, remember the Catholics, what would Jesus do? Very good. So I, I, had, I had a free private school education for a number of years. Yeah. Thanks to Jesus. Thanks to Jesus. Yes. Praise the Lord. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. And can we just jump ahead to a little episode that I did wince uh, with the way you describe it. Mm. So this is uh, the first waltz story um, that comes later. So oh, this is your passing oh, out. Christ, yeah. uh, when you are head boy, we're looking at head boy, please, everybody. Head boy material. <laughs> yes, come that's on. right. Yeah. So, I was actually the head boy at junior school as well. Double whammy. And before that, I was an, I was an altar boy for seven years. That's a lot of stuff there, actually, Colin. I had no idea. I didn't even know you were head boy till I read I was the book. Purely, purely establishment material yes. from the word go. Mind you, it sounds a bit racist, head boy, doesn't it? I have to Do you know what? Careful. The other thing yeah. is that was when these uh, American monks, they'd be uh, replenished. That's right. They'd be, uh, you know, not quite. I mean, you know what I mean? Monk replenishment. Yeah, it's a well-known process. They would come and go, and they'd go back, and they got fed up with Mr. Norman. They'd go back to Louisiana or somewhere, and uh, so they, there'd be a new monk would come over, and there was the monk that came from, uh, I think, he came from New Orleans, and he specialised in shouting across the courtyard when I was head boy. He said, "Hey, boy!" And I said, "That's not nice." And he pretended he was saying head boy, but he wasn't. He was saying, hey boy, like, you know, yes. you're from the South. You're not that's quite a human the, being, actually. Word, you may it? be head boy, but you're just a why. We know it from in the heat of the night, if nothing else. Yes. So, but there was a moment in this wonderful school, St. Columbus College, Sydney Poitier, manicured fingernails. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Very important moment in that film where he's been introduced uh, by this racist cop, played quite well by Rod Steiger. And the, the, this racist southern cop says, what do they call you, boy? And he says, they call me Mr. Tibbs. That's good. That's good. That's good Poitier, that is. That's good. So there's a tradition. When you're a head boy, uh, there's a kind of dance. You're invited to this wonderful dance. And you, get, you, you get to be on the head table, you know, the high table, you know, that kind of stuff. And then the, the previous head boy's there as well with his parents. And the tradition is that the the father of the previous head boy has to dance with the mother of the current head boy. And my mother uh, went with her friend, Anne Hegarty, because Bagay wasn't around, she wouldn't invite him anyway. Um, and I think the, the previous head boy's father looked at my mother and saw this, what he might have imagined, a poor working class black woman, and just took fright. And he wouldn't dance with her. And I was just mortified, actually. And it stayed with me until, you know, until I finished writing this book, actually. That it kind of that, that moment, yeah, that moment of shameful moment where he did not do the right thing, and I, I suffered the humiliation that my mother suffered. I had a kind of a feeling of associative suffering for her, and I thought it was a disgraceful act, and I, I never quite forgave him. Well, I and then forgiven. she gets up and dances with Anne Hegarty. Anne Hegarty, yeah. So Anne Hegarty, um, all my, all my. Mother's friends, apart from the Caribbean people, were Irish. So we grew up in this Irish estate. Irish bingo players, you. Irish, yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. They're all Flins, O'Loughlins, McLaughlins, O'Hearns. So Anne Hegarty stood up and did the right thing by my mother and all power to her. Yes. Excellent. It's quite a difficult thing to write about, actually, um, because um, I just could not believe that my mother could be humiliated in this way by this. Naipaul would call them inferior people. This infi. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't know that his superior was the woman he, he refused to take her hand. Yes. There you are. 
Um, let's jump ahead. We, we meet your sister who, uh, can I say, some estrangement between you and Sister Selma, yeah. also mysteriously called Salome. Um, is that right? <laughs> Correct. Possibly the... dubbed herself Salome at some later stage. Yes. Why not? Yes, well, she entered into the advertising profession where they, they make up stuff, don't they? She, so re, she remade herself as a, as a woman not coming from a working-class family of Caribbean migrants in Luton, but she became an, uh, a beheaded a, maiden. A, uh, yeah, a, um, a Ghanaian or Nigerian princess. Why not? Yeah. So um, years later, I, I uh, was in a radio, radio studio meeting, talking about a book I'd written called Bag Out the Wheel, in which she appears. Bag Out the Wheel? It's yeah. here? Where and are we? um, it transpired that um, I was sat beside someone who'd worked with someone called um, Salome. And uh, as I was talking to him, uh, it was clear that it was my sister he was talking about. But he couldn't commute. He couldn't understand what I was saying because... The woman I was describing, in his mind, was this African princess. And he just refused to believe that it was the same person. So she uh, quite wisely decided that she must get away from the, uh, the ogre of my father, Bagai. And she uh, transformed herself. She went, underwent a kind of Hollywood transformation. And, and the reason for the uh, slight estrangement is because um, she didn't want her story to be complicated. She didn't want, she didn't want to be outed as being other than the way that she presented herself to her Saatchi and Saatchi friends. So we were, we were the skeletons in the cupboard, as it were, yes. who could reveal that she wasn't who she said she was. Okay, so also um, we have the figure of your father, who is quite dominant in the book as a whole, mm. but you've got one chapter devoted to him. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the phrases I think either Selma or you use is uh, Jack and the Beanstalk, mm. the idea that he's the giant upstairs, because at some point I think he's demoted upstairs, as it were. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, did you not have that with your parents? Maybe no, you, had, you had a kind father. You had a kind father, so you probably didn't have that. But our father, he didn't really want... He fathered seven children. But I write in the book, my sister, Selma, who was very sharp, she said he paid much attention to the fathering of his children as a man does when he blows his, no his, no his nose into a handkerchief. That was what he did. And then on to the next one pay no attention to what it's going to do with these things, just discard them. So he didn't really want to be a father, so he would confine himself to the top of the house. So he was, he was the, the giant at the top of the house, and the stairs were the beanstalk. And um, we would try to, uh, to loosen the carpet on the stairs so that he would trip and break his neck. And uh, we would uh, grind up... Um, we, you, know, if you, you know, you can kill a fly with fly killer paper. You know, yes. you, the kind of gluey poison. We would, we'd kind of peel it off and put it into his coffee and hope that he would drink it and become poisoned. But come the day, he would never pick up that coffee. And he would always skip the dodgy step. It's like he had some sort of intuition <laughs> that we were out to get him. I remember saying to one, one person, because uh, he wasn't a very pleasant man, my father, that um, for many, many years after he'd gone, I lived in fear that he would die before I had a chance to kill him. Can I just leave us a pause while we think about that? <laughs> yes. And, and he was violent. Yeah, he was violent, yeah. But it's kind of interesting. I had the, when I wrote about the, the previous book, Bad Guy at the Wheel, um, I had a, a, a strange review in the TLS, the Times Literary Supplement, and the review was kind of complaining that it wasn't violent enough <laughs> and it wasn't sad and miserable enough. And I made a point of not being 
painting in the broad brushstroke violence, because that's what's expected. I wanted to be sort of quiet violence. So and I thought there was violence. And there's one moment, can I tell this story? There's one moment in the book, and I tell it again in this story. I tell it, you know the way that Hillary, not that I'm going to compare myself to Hillary Mantel, but you know the way that Hillary Mantel might tell the same story, but from a different, different perspective in her book. So I do that sometimes with my story. I've only got to find out my stories, so I've got to recycle some of these stories occasionally. Don't tell them, don't tell them. <laughs> so there's this moment, my sister Selma is, uh, that's not her real name, I changed her name. My sister Selma uh, is, she wouldn't want to be known and she wouldn't want me to speak her name. You know that moment when Will Smith takes, says to, um, what's his face, the, the comedian, Chris Rock, take my wife's name out of your fucking mouth. Yeah. So my, my sister wouldn't want me to you know, mouth her so we've, name. we've so, avoided that. So she calls Selma in the book. So she's 14 and she's smart. She's in Jamaican culture. They say she's false ripe. Which, do you know that phrase? Well, I do now. I've read the book. So um, anybody know false ripe? So you know, false, false ripe tomatoes, green, yeah, and you make yeah. them red by yeah, yeah. putting them in whatever yeah. you do. So, so she's older than her chronological years. She's more mature than she ought to be for the amount of years she's lived. And so she susses this guy as a bully, inferior bully, bad guy, uh, intimidated by my mother, intimidated by my mother's family. And he is intimidated by Selma. My father's intimidated by Selma. And she's, uh, she does her own stuff. She's reading Harold Robbins, The Betsy, weird book. And uh, she's growing her nails, ready, ready for a party. And she's saved up money to buy the nail uh, polish. And on one day, she must have said something to him the night before, and he's not forgot, forgotten it. And this afternoon, she's polishing her nails, and he comes down, the giant comes down the beanstalk, and he looks at her, and he says, where are you going with them claw? Them claw, where are you going with them claw? And he gets her hand, in his hand, he gets a pair of scissors, and he cuts off all the nails from her fingers. And I thought, violence enough. There you have violence, there you have domination. Uh, you don't need to go any further. So that's the, that's the approach I take in generally. I, I'd rather have these little, little subtle examples rather than the big, broad, you know, mm. knock them on the head with and the mallet. beautifully told. Yeah, beautifully thank told. you. Yeah. So let's come. So you, you go off to um, the London Hospital. You're at the, the medical school there. Yeah. Um, and one character you, we, we meet mm. um, is a kind of street figure, really. I think I can call him a schizophrenic. Yes. Uh, can I? Is that right? Yes. Herman. Herman Harcourt. Yeah. Yes. And this is an extraordinary encounter. It seemed to me you were meeting somebody that you kind of feared that you might become. Exactly, yeah. So tell us a bit about your encounters with Herman. So I'm at medical school at the London Hospital, and you have to do various attachments, three months stints in various disciplines. The most attractive one was actually obstetrics and gynaecology, because we were taught by a brilliant woman called Wendy Savage. And when Wendy Savage greeted us in our first year, she said, Put away your Grey's Anatomy. Grey's Anatomy is the big Bible. You were at medical school, weren't you? I was. And I also know did, Wendy Savage. Did so, you do yes. dissection? Did I did, you? yes. Yeah. I, I dissected. So, uh, anyway, yeah, I won't go on. Yeah. <laughs> Who was it you dissected? We, no, we did give a name, like you gave yours a name. Uh, yeah, yes, yeah. you're not supposed to do that, by the way, but yeah, yeah. we did. Yes. So Wendy Savage is great because she said, put away your Grey's Anatomy. I've got the two books for you, Michael, Colin, Michael. Uh, Jermaine Greer's female eunuch yeah. and uh, Erica Young's Fear of Flying. And we were just, oh, weirdness. Uh, I loved Wendy Savage, actually. She's partly why I'm here as well, because I loved her writing. She's a great writer. Yeah. 
But anyway, we had to go and do psychiatry. So I went to St. Clement's Hospital in, in Mile End, and you do what's called specialing. You do one-to-one kind of nursing in a way. You look after one patient. And I was charged with looking after this man, Herman Harcourt, who was a Caribbean man, and he was, he was a Latin scholar. He was very bright. And he was from Antigua, I think. And he was about 50, and something had gone wrong. Um, maybe all the pressure of what was expected of him hadn't, had, had, a, had tripped something in him. And he was, and he was now um, sectioned. Um, and then when the section finished, he didn't want to leave the hospital because he became an agoraphobic. So my task was to walk with him first for 100 yards and then back to the hospital. Next day, 200 yards, next day a mile. And um, I was embarrassed by him, in all honesty, because he was a shambolic figure. And there's this thing about, maybe in Jewish culture you have it as well, in a bella figura, I know it's an Italian phrase, but the, the idea that you show your best face to the world. And you're not just representing Colin, you're representing the people, man. And so Herman was letting down the side. Not, you know. So I didn't really I want to be- you mentioned he had rotting maggots in the turn-ups of his trousers. Yeah, that didn't help. That no. wasn't a good look. <laughs> so in, in, initially, I was, I, uh, there was kind of antipathy towards him. Because um, I, you know, I was 19, 20, and I didn't really understand mental ill health. But as I got to know him, and he was kind of like a cartographer or a psychogeographer. He knew all around the stand. We would have long chats, and he was very philosophical. And he, he had been a scholarship boy. Um, he hadn't got the Rhodes Scholar, but you know, he'd been denied the Rhodes Scholarship, but he got some kind of scholarship akin mm. to that. Mm. Um, and I saw, actually, I was a bit wobbly um, at that time because I should never have gone to medical school. Probably bet like you. I should never have gone. I was trying to fulfill the dreams of my parents. And they'd invested so heavily in me, just not only with the ganja and the, you know, the money, but also emotionally. There was, a, there was a lot riding on my shoulders. So I was sticking it out. But I saw myself in him. I thought, you know, there but for the grace of God go I. And somebody says to you, they give you a sort of percentage count. There's this rather brutal... Mm. Lecturer who says yeah. how many people of Caribbean origin—that wasn't his phrase, I think. No, no. How many Jamaicans or something yeah. are going to end up being schizophrenics? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And then when you challenge him, he, he says, "Well, that's the way it is." Like it's yeah, a fact. yeah. Well, and uh, and then he explains why six percent more is the figure, young Caribbean men and women of schiz- developed schizophrenia, and he says, "Do you want to know the reason why, Michael?" I'm saying to Mike, you're me. Yeah, I'm calling you. Yeah. <laughs> he says, black people are schooled in paranoia. So this is a professor? At professor the, of pathology at the London Hospital. Black people are schooled in pathology. In, in, um, paranoia. in paranoia. And what he's saying is that um, you think people are after you. And there's good reason why you do think that. <laughs> because your parents tell you that, that people, you're being watched. My father was saying all the time, you're being watched. You're being watched to see which way you turn, to see whether you conform to the, the man, the British people's idea of you, being feckless, work shy, destined for a life of crime. You're being watched. So you're completely, you've got this idea that you are under surveillance all the time. And we felt that we were like, under enemy occupation, actually. So in a way, he was right. We were schooled in thinking that actually they're out to get you. And um, sadly, I think there's an element of truth in that. Well, in fact, one of the themes that you return to in the book is the idea of being positioned and whether you fight the positioning or not. That's how I felt it, that yeah. all these various characters coming at you um, from the outside world, not just the family, sort of positioning you and you wondering whether you are in that position or not. Yeah. So there's, I mean... 
It's a strange it... uh, dissonance that arises. I mean, I didn't probably ex express any of this to you when we were working together. Did well, I? we did used to have interesting chats. Um, yeah. in, in you know, in the but did you Bush feel House I was canteen. masking? Do you, do you think? Do you did think I think a, you were a mask? Do you think, no. Do you think I, I was? There was a veil. Do you think you got the real Colin? I mean, people know me now. I think. You, what you knew how to write? You, you, you had dreams of writing. Well, you used you, to tell me every I, lunchtime. I know you. I know you. You I used know. to say every lunchtime, <laughs> I want to be a writer. I don't want to be a bloody BBC producer. <laughs> so I said, well, well, don't get you're, out and write. You're spoiling my story, Mike. All right. Well, maybe uh, yeah, it's all right, but yeah. you know. No, 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 you. Yeah, you. Okay. So, yeah, well, you. But no, I, I, think I wasn't other a producer. I was just coming in yeah, as this yeah. layabout to do programs. Well, no, you were kind of akin to a Caribbean man. That's what I was thinking. You're like one of you're, you're like one of us, you know. That's my mother used to you. say to me, and I'm being honest now. My mum used to say to me, uh, "Find your people, you know, through life. Look for your people. You'll find them. Clean your glasses. You're my people. You're my peeps." <laughs> um, but a lot of people weren't my people, and I didn't know whether they could be trusted. You know the reason why all these Caribbean people have these nicknames? So my father's called, I'm sorry for um, Desiree who's uh, heard me say this before, and my wife and my daughter's heard me say it a thousand times. I'm going to well, pretend not that... to come next time, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> so when I'm growing up, I, we didn't have a television until 1972. The entertainment were the Caribbean people that I grew up with, all these amazing characters. They're like uh, the characters in Sam Selvin's The Lonely Londoners. I thought they were the source material because they were sharp, man. And they all had style. You can't take away style. You can, you can starve someone, but you can't take away their style. You can deny them employment, they're going to have style. You say you can't work here, they're going to pull the collar up, and they're going to walk on by. So these guys, bad guy has permanent bags under his eyes, subcutemes edema from the age of 16. Some, he's a merchant seaman, some wag calls him bad guy, it sticks. He hates the name, but he has to live with it. Shine is bald, like me. Pumpkin head, has a pumpkin-shaped head. Anxious is always very anxious. Tidy Boots has a thing about shoes. <laughs> Clock has one arm longer than the other. <laughs> and my all-time favorite was Somerware. So when Somerware came to this country from Jamaica in 61, 62, he insisted on wearing light summer suits, no matter the weather, come rain or storm. And uh, in the course of writing about these characters, I asked my mum, whatever happened to Somerware? And she said, well, Within the six months of coming, he caught a chill and died. <laughs> she said it straight. She didn't say it for comic effect. Because, Michael, if you're called summer wear, you cannot wear a heavy coat. No. <laughs> Talking of Jamaica, you go with your mum to Jamaica. Yeah, no. But let me just finish oh, God, you're yeah. Sorry, I thought so, you finished. Uh, sorry. So, almost finished. Uh, so, th they had these names as kind of veiling. But also, they had these names, these nicknames, because they fear obia. You know about obia? Yes. Voodoo. Because um, if I want to do you harm, the Obi man says, find out what his name, find out his name, his real name. His name, probably not Michael, some other name. Find his real name. And then take his name, write it on a bit of paper, put the paper in the heel of your shoe, and then you have dominion over him. You can do with him what you want. So if you give a nickname, you have no fear of the Obia. Ah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. So, talking of Obia, we go to Jamaica. We go to Jamaica. We go yeah. to Jamaica yeah. with your mum, yeah. and part of it is to make a radio programme, but also it's an exploration for you. Not just with my mum, with Joe, my partner, my blouse, and Jazz, my daughter, she's two then, she's grown up a bit since then. Yeah, she is. A bit and old. we're going to go back to Jamaica, because my mum, since arriving 
in Britain in 59 has never gone back. And that we're now in the 80s. And, but she's always, every Friday we'd get this newspaper called the Jamaica Gleaner. And on the back of the Gleaner, there'd be adverts of plots of land you could buy and architectural drawings of houses you could build. And every Friday the Gleaner would arrive in the house and my mum would take a pencil and go to, right to the back of the paper and she'd ring that advert. We're going home. We're going home. But we never went home. And she's got the grip on top of the wardrobe. She's got the grip. There was suitcase on top of the wardrobe, ready to go. <laughs> she's, she's ready to go. She's, she's been ready to go all the time that she's arrived. But she's never gone back. And you know, five years becomes 10, 10 becomes 15. And before you know, you're changing the wallpaper. When you change the wallpaper, it's a heavy investment. Mm. When you change the wallpaper, you know that you are here to stay. That's what Boris thought. <laughs> <laughs> We're playing snooker now. I set them up and Michael knocks them into back of the hole, back of the net. Like, boom. Um, yeah, so, but, uh, but uh, I know that she's always yearned to go. So, um, I mean, so I've had a kind of an interesting time with the BBC. Most of the time it's been great, um, but there's been a few moments where it's not been so great, which are in the book. But in this moment, um, I convinced the BBC, I think it might have even been Anne who might, might have let me go. Anne who's Anne here. Through. Wave um, to Anne, everybody. Thanks. There's Anne. Props to Anne. Yeah. Respect to Anne. <laughs> And so you want to go and have a holiday in Jamaica with your mother? Sure, <laughs> go. So the idea is to go back to, to Jamaica and chart the impact of her of arriving in a place he hadn't seen for 35 years. And all through my childhood, my mother, I think, has been stymied by being in England. And I didn't realize the degree to which she's a flamboyant person. But in England, she's rather constrained, rather re reduced, although she might recite Gunga Ding on a Saturday morning cleaning the house. She, you know, she's schooled in the romantic poets in Kickman, all those guys, Yeats, Wordsworth. But when I thought of her, uh, she, she, I think she would say that there was no real happiness in Britain. And she would just sort of stare at the walls and wonder what had happened to her because she was, she had greater... How old was she when she came? She was 24 when she came, but she had great expectations for her life. And then she made a mistake and married this guy called Bag Eye. Big mistake. Um, and she would have been a middle-class woman in, in Jamaica. But when we landed in Jamaica, in Kingston Airport 35 years later, suddenly she was singing... She was dancing, she was being cheeky like you, she was interacting with the people then, and she was haggling and huddling, and, and uh, she was like an artist, drawing on all the colours of the spectrum. Whereas in England, I thought she was like uh, an artist painting in black and white. And I suddenly thought, ooh, what would it have been like if she hadn't left Jamaica? Mm. If she'd stayed, would she have been as vibrant and as vivacious as she was in those few weeks that I saw when we went to Jamaica 35 years later. So sometimes I think people, uh, they have one narrative of migration. Migration is to come to this wonderful place where you can better yourself. Yeah. And it's a story of whether you're going to be successful or not, which is true. But the other narrative is what sacrifices do people make to come here? What do they leave behind? And I think that they traded the kind of financial security, maybe educational security, for emotional wealth. And uh, so I, I take my hat off to my mum and, and to Bag Eye as well, and all those people who uh, have made that calculation that actually, despite uh, 
confining themselves to maybe a miserable life in terms of the splendor of what they're used to. They're going to make their children's life better. And she kind of teases herself with the possibility. She looks around, you know, yeah, could yeah. she live up here in this place and mm. where there are mosquitoes and yeah. it's a bit cooler and yeah, yeah. and this guy sort of flirts with her and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. so on. But she, in the end, she gets no. back on the plane and comes home and yeah. has never left, has she? She hasn't left, In fact, no. she's come and lived near you in Brighton. Yeah, I'm, I'm the magnet. Yeah. I'm, I'll tell you a little secret. Um, so uh, I'm one of seven children and I wonder whether you... Have you got siblings? Yeah, I've got one. One yeah. died, but I've got one. Yeah. So, you know, in the modern way, people have these sort of circles of connectivity, WhatsApp groups, or they might have a kind of closed group on uh, email. So I've got siblings who have a, who have a kind of a c- connection with my uncle Castus, is in the book. And um, inadvertently, I got inc- I'm not in the circle. In a, inadvertently, I got included in one of these emails. They, they've, you know, they, they copied me in wrongly. And I was outed as... The special one. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. So that's... It wasn't a compliment. <laughs> no. You're, as it were, the snobby one to one side. You're the one yeah. who thinks he's too big for... Yeah, yes. yeah. The one yes. who thinks you can avoid disciplinary hearings just yes. by saying, that's not me. That's, you've got the wrong person. <laughs> yes. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Well, on that note, we'll end our chat for the time being and uh, open it up to the floor. Uh, so, uh, please, folks, any questions? Congratulations, Colin. Oh, uh, thank you. You managed to finish yours. I'm still working on mine. <laughs> Keep on going. Keep on going. But it is going to be called Stush. Nice. <laughs> um, it is a quite emotional process writing your memoir, mm. particularly people like us who spend a lot of our lives masking and having that divided connection between a place that's 6,000 miles away mm. versus where we are and what we're confronted with on a daily basis. What did you feel at the end of completing yours? Because I'm not at that stage yet. Mm. How did you feel at the end of completing it in Mm. terms of going through that process on a therapeutic kind of level? Mm. Well, I didn't think it was therapeutic, but I did enjoy it. And um, one of the great things about writing memoir is that you can continue conversations that you've had with people who may not even be around anymore. So I enjoyed that. I mean, that's why I enjoyed writing my 
my book about epilepsy because I could continue my conversation with my dead brother. But I enjoyed um, reflecting uh, in the book stories which I knew were kind of interesting when I was growing up. I thought it was a weird household here. And um, one of the, I mean, Michael, you can speak to this as well. One of the joys of writing is, is to, to kind of reach, to grasp something which is almost impossible to grasp. But the, the joy is to, to make the attempt. And so I think I made a, a kind of a, a stronger attempt this time to be more revelatory without being naked. I was having a chat with my friend Nick about what the difference between being nude and naked and about um, how you might feel that you can expose yourself but still feel protected. So there's a way of writing where you, you might, people who don't know you might feel, oh God, this guy, how does this guy walk through town that, without any clothes on? But in my mind, I'm kind of covered with all the kind of the techniques that I use to describe the world in which I inhabit. So I'm clothed, but I'm, I'm naked. So it's a bit nervous being, being exposed in this way, but actually I, um, I've been, uh, sitting with these stories and these thoughts um, for quite a long time. It's quite, in a way, it's quite a privilege to be able to, um, in a coherent way, to allow people to just to think about how varied your thoughts might be and how rich and what a kind of tapestry is going on in your head. And the more specific you are, mm. the more hooks you give to anybody reading it to go, oh, I kind of know that yeah. from my background or anybody's background. At least I, as I was reading it, I was going, I know that. So whatever you were talking about, because you were so specific. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a nice paradox. That yeah. The more specific and culturally specific you are, the more you open the door for someone reading it from a different culture or cultures and going, I get that, I get mm. that. So but that's, also, yeah, that's but, but also it's powerful to be able to say to people who you write about that your life matters and you've included them in the book. You've, yeah. you've, you, know, you know that line, Willie Lohman in the, the um, Arthur Miller play, the, uh, well, the Death of a Salesman, and his, his, the wife says, you know, you know, he matters, tell him that he matters. You know, people want to know that they matter, and I wanted to know, and I wanted to express that the people that I would write, was writing about mattered. And I hadn't really, I hadn't really, and it kind of was a kind of honouring and a kind of sharing, because actually these are, you know, wonderful, dare I say it, wonderful, rich and, and exciting stories yes. uh, that add texture to the culture in which we live. Um, and so I felt rather pleased to have, to finish the book. I mean, a work of art, as you know, never finished. You just abandon it, don't you? I've had enough of that. On to the next. Well, that satisfied the publishers. It's good enough. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty. I mean, I think. Is it Phillips, the psychiatrist, talks about you know um, arriving at a position where you find that that your partner is good enough for you? You know, people go looking for the perfect person, and eventually they say, "Well, oh, she's good enough, or he's good enough." Um, and it's true about writing as well. You want to write the most perfect book, but at some point you say, "It's good enough." So I'm enjoying reading the book again, which is a good sign because uh, you don't necessarily—it's not guaranteed, is it—that you kind of enjoy what you've written. After a while. Thank you for that question. Yeah. Another question. Yes, it's of course. yes. Uh, maybe it's a bit early to ask you this question. The title, I'm black, so you don't have to be. What's been reaction to that? Yeah, well. I, I think it's a fantastic, fantastic title. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I was worried about it, Snezhina. Um And I was talking to my, uh, well, I hate people who are proprietorial, my agent. I was talking to my friend, the agent, Sophie, earlier about this. And uh, couple, uh, maybe 18 months ago, I was nervous about it because uh, I thought it was a kind of witty title, slightly ironic title. 
but people who didn't know me might just take it at face value and think that I hate being black. I'm one of those sort of self-loathing black people. That's what I was worried about. But the reaction has been quite good because uh, quite early on, I explain in the book anyway, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe people have passed on the ex explanation. So I have this uncle whom you know. <laughs> I have this really lovely uncle. Is he um, here? I, <laughs> I hope well, not. I hope not. That, but it's, it's great. It's called, uh, it's, it's called Castus in the book. I've had to change his name. He wouldn't mind, actually, but he pretends that he might sue me. Uh, so Castus is the guy... Well, your father wanted to sue you because somebody says in the book that he's a jackass because he, yeah, yeah. he can't gamble properly. Yeah. And he threatens to sue you because of... Because of bug eye. That's right, exactly. Yeah. Bug eye, sorry. Yeah, so bug eye. Uh, sorry, we jumped in. But, yeah, but Jamaicans are very litigious people, so you've got to be careful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Can I tell you a story about Marcus Garvey? But I'll, get, I'll get back to what we're going to say. <laughs> yeah, we'll go, we'll go via Marcus Garvey and we'll come back. Yeah. Marcus Garvey, the most important black man on the planet in the 1920s, he's the Barack Obama of his day. Jamaican country boy comes to the city to better himself, and as is true the world over, takes elocution lessons to rid himself of this country accent, enters statewide elocution competitions and always comes first until one occasion he gets up to speak, to do his normal oration, and some bugger jeers and heckles him. He comes third and he's annoyed, so annoyed that he sues the heckler and wins. It's good, good suing. So yeah, yeah, don't don't mess with the Jamaicans. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot what we were going to talk about now. Yeah, what were we going to talk about? It was good. Castus. Oh yeah, Castus. Yeah, well done. So uh, my uncle Castus. Very learned man. My uncle Castus. Yeah. Uh, is about fourteen years older than me. He uh, came to this country when I born. When I was born, I was born. I born here. So he's fourteen years older than me. But as we grew, he grew as well. Um, we were more like brothers than uncle and nephew. Um, but in his mind, and maybe in my mind as well, he's more intelligent than me. He's more erudite than me. He's more charming. He's better looking. But he hasn't had the breaks that I've had in life because he arrived too soon in the culture. He's just considered an irksome darky. And time and time again, he would say to me as we were riffing, like we're riffing now, he would say, I'm black calling so you don't have to be. So what he's saying is that he's done all the heavy lifting in order for me just to walk a waltz through life as Colin without being racialized. So that's what the title pain, is. It's pain there. Though. It's painful, yeah. But it's great pain, isn't it? I, I like a bit of pain. Don't you like pain? Um, I'm not mad keen on it, actually. <laughs> um, no, look, if I, I think you, about it. But, but, yeah, but, but hold on, look. Yeah. I don't imagine you... Are you the man who goes to the beach and lies on the beach and just gets a tan. You're not going to do that, are you? No. You want a bit of discomfort, don't you? You want to get out there and rough things up a little bit. Yeah. So that's why you know, I like a bit of pain. Um, <laughs> but I've had no problems with, I've, I've had some bad problems with titles. I mean, Ella will tell you. <laughs> when I did my title about uh, Marcus Garvey, I, uh, I made a big mistake. I don't think it's here. I, it is. I, it is. Oh, yeah, yeah. It is. Yeah, so as I said, Marcus Garvey is the most important black man on the planet. And I had the stupidity to call the book uh, Negro with a Hat. It wasn't really stupid. It's what his enemies called him. But what I hadn't reckoned with is that people don't understand irony. And, and a lesson for you, if you have to explain irony, it hasn't really worked. <laughs> so I, I was, uh, I'm not great with titles. They get me into trouble. So I was nervous about this one. But so far, the Legali Front has given me a pass. You know about the Legali Front? No. The, oh, they're here. The Legali Front, um, I'm not disrespecting them, but they police everything black. They, you know, if... 
they're going to say, are you the right kind of black? That, you know, the, and so uh, one, I mean, Ella was there, and if it, Nick was there. My first talk in, uh, in uh, the Harringay Library, in, in uh, the Marcus Garvey Library, for my first book. So you know when you come, you've come here and you're in awe of Michael and me, you know, and you're sort of <laughs> bowing and you think, oh, what wonderful presence. And I was like that. I was, I was where you were just a few years ago. And I was in awe of writers. I, I, I dreamed of the moment I'd have my chance to be the one that people are paying attention to. And I, and I went to the Marcus Garvey Library to give a talk about um, Marcus. It was in respect for the fact that they lent me the books in order to write. So I'm there, and I got 40 books for sale. And uh, the Legali Front don't like the title, and they don't like the subtitle of the first review. I got a review in the Telegraph by Dominic Stanbrook. And we, it was a good review, but the, the sub-editor's headline was The Black David Brent. So Marcus Garvey is a buffoon, a charlatan, a disgrace to the race. And the Legali Front thought that I'd given the sub-editor license to depict Marcus Garvey in that way. So they summoned the troops to my first talk. And it wasn't pleasant, Mike. No. no. So what happened was I, I, um, I realized there was going to be problems because the, uh, the you know, they, there was word on the street. And there's about 70, 80 people in this room. And um, I got my, my, I got Uncle Castus came. Oh. And I thought there's gonna be trouble. I get Castus here. So he's the cavalry. Uh, but even he couldn't talk. He's got, you know, it's a big Jamaican voice, but he was kind of intimidated. He couldn't, he couldn't keep the Legali No, no, front the Legali front. But there were 70 people there who, who uh, wanted to, um, to dishonor me in some way. Oh dear. Well, my, my uncle said they want to take you around the back of the building and pummel you to death with a baseball bat. <laughs> Um, but they thought I was some sellout wannabe token white man. And, um, and I, th I remember thinking, oh, there's a guy there who came, he came in with a suit, like a Sunday suit. I thought, if it goes pear shit, I'll focus on the brother in the suit. He had a fedora as well. And, it was, and they're just, it's like walking into a, 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 like the worst family argument ever. And no one's paying any attention. And eventually I say, look, what does the brother in the suit think? Um, and uh, he says, um, when I go to the newsagent and I see on the top shelf uh, May, 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 Mayfair, Mayfair, yeah, I don't buy those rags, Mayfair and men only, I know it's pornography. And I'm going to quote now, if, um, there's nobody recording this, I'm going to quote what, was, what he then said. Uh, maybe I shouldn't, I might get into trouble. I'm not going to say it. Don't but say he it. made some comparison to a, a, a leader from Pakistan who wore a war suit, Jinnah. Jinnah and suit. And what I hadn't reckoned is, and I must have known this, that um, don't mess with the Jamaicans, for starters, but Jamaicans can do menace like no other. So I had these guys walking behind me, kissing their teeth, thinking, I think, what's going on here then? And some, some guy said, look, what you need to do, Colin, is um, come clean. You're coming across as an arrogant shit. You know, we, we feel, we live the Marcus Garvey story. You're just treating it some sort of intellectual exercise. And you work for the Bumba Club Broadcasting Corporation as well. Is that what it stands for? Of course. Oh, I never knew. <laughs> so they say, <laughs> you knew. They say, uh, well, why don't you give away a couple of copies, Colin, and then we can read the book and make an informed opinion. And I say, fair enough. And, and I'm sure it's not your fault, but they've closed the library now. Oh. Definitely. That's a shame. Anyway, they come down. Uh, uh, the, the two person, they come down. They pick up a copy of <laughs> Negro with a Hat. Um, any, any other questions? And away they, I, I haven't finished yet. And, <laughs> and, away, <laughs> and away they go. So I, 
No, no, I'm talking. It's the prop. Uh, so you took your book. And I, I scalped. I didn't get any, any. I didn't make any sales that night. I just gave away the books. Yeah. yeah. So don't try that tonight, because <laughs> Brother Michael will be watching you. Yeah. yeah. Lovely. We got time for maybe one or two. Maybe the last one. Let's have a look. Yeah, Michael. Do you two guys have diaspora, a sense of diaspora, in common? Ooh, that's a good question. Who kicks off on that one? I think you better do. Well, um, thinking yeah. time, yeah. Yes. Um, right. So the situation for a Jew of my background is that there are hardly any Jews left in Poland. And most of my relatives came from Poland and Eastern Europe. And so uh, the Meshbucha, as you would call it in Yiddish, and the Meshbucha have all gone. The ones who survived uh, were in Britain and America. Um, and the ones in France uh, were killed and also, I say, the ones in Poland. And my father, who always used to talk about the Heim or the Haim, which is the homeland, was not Israel in my family. It was Poland. And so I have always a strange feeling. I've often worked in London schools and hearing kids talking about going with their uh, grandparents to Bangladesh or Jamaica or other islands in the Caribbean or to Ghana and to Nigeria. And a sense of this duality is very powerful for uh, the people nodding in the room who will know, know you mm. travel and you go. And I've occasionally thought, well, wouldn't it be nice if I could go to Warsaw? Or wouldn't it be nice because some of my relatives, it's another place called Dabrowa Gornice. Um, and there was only one relative out of them all who survived. And so he went back with his sons. It's my father's cousin. He went with his sons. And that was a lovely moment for them because he found his birth certificate. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> which is quite a funny story, actually, because uh, the Polish authorities couldn't find it. And then they asked him whether he was of the mosaic persuasion. <laughs> and um, when they found out he was and that he'd also fought in the Battle of Monte Cassino, he suddenly became the hero of the day because wow. that was the Polish Free Army. And um, it was a very moving moment for them. But I do sometimes think so. But in terms of a sense of diaspora, it's, it, I do feel that my diaspora, I don't have a sense of Israel being my homeland, but a sense of... Uh, Poland being something to do with me, and uh, as it happens, I'm going to Yiddish classes at the moment in order to sort of connect with it. Oh, that's very good. Yeah, I wish I could understand it. I'm only on class nine. Yeah, that's very good. Yeah. Um, so I only know the Yiddish of my parents. So, uh, but I totally identify with the yearnings going on in your book, and also yeah. it's so powerful the sense of double or even triple identities. But yeah. I always think. But it's nothing to be afraid of. I'm not suggesting you're afraid of it. If I can pick up, to maybe finish on this, there's a tone in the book, mm. if I might call it a, a slight, how can I call it, cultural pessimism. That's to say Ooh. that somehow or other there's a place in which, no, there's a way in which you can't quite find a place. Mm. And I sort of found, right, so reading somebody like Stuart Hall, he calls on us to decenter ourselves. Mm. He says that the, the reason why people in your position, not just you or people of Caribbean culture, but all sorts of cultures, is because we have a notion of the centre. And as long as there's a notion of the centre, which you express very well in the chapter on the BBC, then other people are in a fringe. Yeah, but yeah. it's absurd. There is mm. no fringe and no centre, really, mm. in identity terms. We are who we are. Mm. And, and you throw that in the book, and I found that really, really powerful towards the end, and particularly in the BBC chapter, this, this sense of 
uh, why are we stuck with this centering? If only we could decenter ourselves. Mm. Though in your own life, I'd have, I, I would have said, as I know you, you've done brilliantly at decentering, of, of challenging the center mm. and indeed overcoming it. So yeah, yeah. no need to be a pessimist, Colin, I yeah, would yeah. say to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're winning. Thank you, yeah. I, I would say that in our culture, in Luton, and in listening to reggae songs, there's this notion that the Israelites are, are we are the Israelites. Yes. You know, we have this shared, 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 shared experience <laughs> yes. of being enslaved, yes. not by the Egyptians, <laughs> but the idea that there's some exodus or that, that uh, my mother would say, this world is not my resting place. She, you know, so she's not looking for a center. Yes. She's only passing through. And, and I think when I grew up in Luton, we would default to other migrants. So whether they're Jewish, Mr. Kislowski is Jewish, Polish guy, Irish, South Asian. So anything but the English, in a way, in a funny thing. So um, in a way, I, the idea was always to find the center, but, but also to recognize that you were the center. And you know, if you wait around long enough, then they will come to you, I suppose. Excellent. All right, have we got? Time. Well, one more question, we maybe. There's one, one more, more question, but that was a lovely note on which we could end on. But if you, yeah. you've got that, that was uh, yeah. So do a French exit. Yeah. No. no. We want to end on that. And we um, do. Rip, we... Thank you so much, Michael and Colin. Uh, please round do of applause, book. please. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.